Hello there, my name is Gabe Coyle. It is great to be together with you. And today our passage is Luke chapter 18, verse 18, all the way down to verse 43. If you have your own copy of the scriptures, I'd encourage you to follow along. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, but it's a little bit longer, but hang with me because it'll give us a little bit of context as to what Jesus is seeking to communicate here. So hear now God's word to us. And a ruler asked him, speaking of Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And talking or taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we do say thank you for the richness of your word and how here we find two little snippets of stories of people who have approached you, engaged you in history. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear what it is you want to teach us in this day and age, in this time, in the 21st century, as to what it looks like to follow you wholly, fully, and to know you intimately. We trust that the Holy Spirit will work through this moment, work through your word, 
We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to begin with a snippet of someone's life, and I want you to see if you can guess who this is. He faced obstacle after obstacle. He was arrested over 20 times for protesting. He was the object of several violent attacks, both personally and to his property. He had threatening phone calls targeting him and his family. His home was bombed, and then it was set on fire. He was stabbed in the chest and nearly died. While now he's nationally celebrated, in his own time he was the object of public and political ridicule. Two days after his well-known I Have a Dream speech, FBI Domestic Intelligence Chief William Sullivan wrote in a memo to the organization, we must mark him now, if we have not done so before, as the most dangerous Negro of the future in this nature, nation. From the standpoint of communism, the Negro, and national security. Well, this weekend, if you haven't guessed it by now, we are remembering the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was assassinated in the United States on April 4, 1968. He was a man who faced many obstacles in his mission toward a more just and equitable society. But time and again, he overcame until, of course, he stepped into glory. He's a model of perseverance. And while there's much that's unique to the courage and calling of Dr. King, it is a part of the human journey for every single one of us to come up against obstacles. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines an obstacle as something that makes it difficult to do something, an object that you have to go around or over, something that blocks your path. And there's nothing more frustrating, I think, or heartbreaking than seeing where you need to go and feeling stuck because of an unforeseen obstacle. I mean, there are so many kinds of obstacles that can stand in our way of where we feel called to go, tempting us to turn back. But today we're going to actually focus in on hearing from Jesus concerning one of the greatest obstacles to following him and entering his kingdom. We're walking through, if you're new, walking through the gospel account of Luke. Um, this, is the high, this is the historical eyewitness testimony of who Jesus is, what he did, and what sort of kingdom he's bringing. And those who knew him best, they didn't see him merely as a teacher or a rabbi or a guru. They saw him as a king. The king promised since the dawn of time, and with him he was ushering in a kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is where his rule, which is made up of his purposes, his values, his desires, where his rule prevails. But frankly, I think we have a lot still to learn about Jesus as our king and his kingdom. And so we're seeking to rediscover Jesus' kingdom here by listening and watching Jesus, the king himself. Last week, we saw how we enter into his kingdom. We become like a child in a very specific way. Well, today we're going to see one of the greatest obstacles that actually stands in our way to entering the kingdom. And then we're also going to see how to overcome like other people who have overcome before us. When it feels impossible, that's when we know God's working. So let's take a look together. If you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. As you heard read, we, we find this man of status, a ruler who approaches Jesus. He's a man worthy of attention, probably a man who's greatly respected in the community. 
And when he approaches Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus responds in verse 19 by saying to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now my first response to this is like, whoa, because the way that they're approaching each other is not equal. I mean, you might be even thinking, I mean, what's the deal, Jesus? Why are you so rough with this guy? Why are you responding so abrasively? And you may even be thinking, okay, so maybe the gospel or the, the obstacle to entering Jesus's kingdom is Jesus. But I want you to hold on for just a second. Part of the issue is that everyone present would have known what was happening. But as Westerners, we can often feel lost sometimes when we step into these narratives. And here's what Jesus knows. Jesus knows this ruler is trying way too hard. I mean, right out the gate, the ruler seeks to flatter Jesus. This guy is rich. He clearly knows how to get what he wants. And so he uses a common tool, flattery. Oh, good teacher, right? He starts with this framing. And frankly, in an ancient Middle Eastern culture, he was probably expecting a level of reciprocity, maybe hoping that Jesus would respond with an oh, noble ruler. But Jesus doesn't play that game. <laughs> Rather, Jesus challenges his whole premise. When first this gentleman responds with, oh, good teacher, Jesus says, well, why are you calling me good? I mean, who's good but God alone? Now, this is a brilliant response in that it both challenges the idea that a human being can be good by their own merit, which is a framework he was coming with, and simultaneously suggests who Jesus really is. If Jesus is indeed good, then he must be more than just a teacher. But that implication, it kind of just hangs in the air. Because then Jesus lists off five of the Ten Commandments, which has significance, the number that he chooses and how he orders them, but we'll get to that in a minute. But the ruler says in response to Jesus' request about has he been obeying these commands, is yeah, I've been obeying these suckers since my bar mitzvah, okay? So, you, you know, he's a, he's a pretty righteous dude who's trying to dot all of his I's and cross all of his T's, to which Jesus says, okay, all right. Well, there's one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Now, at this point, it may feel like we've got this whole narrative figured out, but I don't want you to jump the gun, okay? The demands that Jesus lays out touch on two primary values in an ancient Middle Eastern culture. The first one we can naturally assume is property, but the second is family that often goes without notice. You see, the family estate is of supreme importance, and family will go to extraordinary lengths in order to keep their family at the ancestral home. I mean, not only are there these deep family ties to which people are pooling and the great weight that individuals feel being a part of these families to stick around, to be present, but also he has a lavish home with status and honor. I mean, he's probably so wealthy that his wealth consists of covering multiple properties. He probably has servants and livestock, and he oversees it all. People come to him asking for favors. They lavish praise on him. Maybe they've extended flattery his direction. It's hard to explain just how amazing of a status this gentleman holds. And then Jesus asks him, 
to leave it all behind and give his loyalty to Jesus as supreme. To find his wealth, actually, in Jesus. To find his family in Jesus. To find his everything in Jesus. Which, by the way, this is why Jesus listed the commands in verse 20 the way that he did. He begins with family, don't commit adultery, and he ends with family, honor your father and mother. He's highlighting with the start and the finish that he's attacking one of the deepest loyalties that this man has. And when the ruler realizes that you can, you can be extraordinarily wealthy and be extremely connected and that that can get you everything in the ancient world except this, except for life with Jesus, eternal life, a place in Jesus' kingdom, frankly, it's heartbreaking. And in the midst of Jesus recognizing that this man is trying way too hard, the ruler realizes that he can't try hard enough. So he returns, if you know, if we return to his initial question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He learns the answer. There's nothing he can do. His self-assurance is utterly demolished because he will not give up his family loyalties for Jesus. He will not give up his wealth. It's too much to actually gain Jesus. And then he grieves in silence. And here's where Jesus reveals this obstacle, all right, that this gentleman has come smack up against. Jesus, looking at this man with sadness, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's no easy way to put this, but one of the greatest obstacles to entering Jesus' kingdom is wealth. Plain and simple. Wealth can be one of the greatest obstacles to entering Jesus' kingdom. Does that mean wealth is evil? No. Does that mean that there are no rich people engaged in the kingdom of God? No. And yet, Jesus' little parable can't be explained away. It is literally the idea of a physical animal going through a sewing needle. People have tried to say, oh, there's this special gate that it was really hard for a camel to squeeze through, but there is no historical backing to actually give that validity. It's as impossible as it sounds. Jesus is saying this, the more lavish your own kingdom, the harder it is to enter Jesus's. The more lavish your own kingdom, the harder it is to enter Jesus's. Why is that the case? Well, for two reasons. One, if you're really wealthy, it's easy to get used to earning everything. When you have wealth, you don't have to ask for help. You don't have to ask for favors or no special considerations. And usually when someone has wealth, it's because they worked really hard. I mean, they got up earlier. They went to bed late. They earned it, which is why the ruler asks, what do I have to do? Because I'll do it. There's been no obstacle that stood in my way from where I am today. He believes he can do it. If he's earned all this, if he's fought to the top and he's cared for others and he's provided for others, why not also here? And more than just being used to earning everything, the next natural movement when you have wealth, an exorbitant wealth, is that you like being known as someone who earned it. Known by others as more gifted, talented, hardworking than, you know, anyone else, anyone else that tries to compare against you, known to yourself as the best, you feel good about being a hardworking, well-earned person, and in a twisted way, you can even potentially be 
delighted in either one being needed or two looking down on others. Feeling superior comes with its own twisted sense of delight. But here's the deal. The ruler, with all his success and all of his wealth, he has to understand he cannot earn his entrance into Jesus' kingdom. It's not what I must do, but who I must trust. And no amount of wealth or obedience will amount to an entitled entrance because God owes nothing to no one. And frankly, the more you have, the more lavish your kingdom, your domain, your accomplishments, the harder it is to hear that you enter the same way as everyone else. That you need God to work in your life just as much as everyone else. That there are areas in your life you still need to surrender because you haven't arrived. That you need to give Jesus ultimate authority over your life and that you need to make every other loyalty secondary to him. Because you're used to calling the shots. But not when we enter Jesus' kingdom. And when we wrestle with this, it, it becomes easier to walk away from Jesus, to walk away from his church, to walk away from his kingdom initiatives. And believe we don't need what Jesus offers in his kingdom. You know, my, my son Israel, he often counts the cost, especially at dinner time. You know, I love ice cream, so I thought I could use the same tactic my parents used on me. But sometimes he'd be eating his veggies. And I'd say, son, if you don't finish your dinner, you don't get ice cream. And he'll like sit there and he'll go, ah, I don't really want ice cream. I'm done. And he'll get down and I'm like, ah, it didn't work. You know, he counts the cost. And frankly, just putting in the time to eat the veggies wasn't worth the reward at the end. Well, there's a cost to walking away with Jesus. And I, I want you to see it because they're here in the text. There are three costs. The first one is suddenly the rich ruler, when he finally realizes what his choice would cost him, he becomes very sad. You know, the only other place that that language is used is as of Jesus here when he looks at the rich man, but also when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, warring over the cross that's before him and the burden that is about to come. You see, choosing to give your ultimate loyalty to anything other than Jesus, it will break you in the end on the depths of who you are. It'll lead you to despair eventually. And then number two, here's the second cost. Think of the community. We often think exclusively of the individual in this case, but think about the surrounding context. Imagine if the ruler would have done what Jesus called him to do. Imagine the material good that would come to that community. And then thirdly, imagine the glory that would have come to God in the midst of this process. That kind of generosity. It would have had a massive impact on that community and frankly how that community viewed Jesus. And then number three, just think of this gentleman's eternal destiny. Here he's rejected Jesus by holding fast to his wealth. He's rejected Jesus by choosing his own path. A life with the greatest comforts known to man but void of Jesus is a path of despair forever. And no amount of money or family will be able to take that away. Now, when we come to this text, and, and I've wrestled with this personally, some might say, hey, that this command to give up all you have and give it to the poor, it's unique in Scripture and only applicable to, to, applicable to this particular ruler, which frankly, it is. It's not a universal command to everybody to give away their stuff. But what Jesus warns about the obstacle of wealth 
has universal significance for everyone. And in a country like ours that is wealthier than most, the warning rings true, especially for each and every one of us. I mean, there may be some watching right now who are still asking, okay, Gabe, what do I need to do right now to inherit eternal life? You may be finding yourself asking, has anyone actually done what Jesus asks here? Clear that the rich ruler has failed, but has anybody actually done what Jesus requests? Well, actually, you only have to go down a few verses to see that Jesus' disciples had done that very thing that Jesus asked the rich ruler to do. Peter speaking for all the disciples there says, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Those disciples to Jesus, they had left everything. Sure, it wasn't as much as the rich ruler, but that was the point. Once again, the more lavish your own kingdom, the harder it is to enter Jesus's. And as you scroll further down to Luke chapter 18, verse 35, this last kind of story that we read in that larger swath of scripture, you find this blind beggar. I mean, he has nothing. He doesn't have even his eyesight, but he sees in the most important sense. Instead of calling Jesus a good teacher and seeking to flatter him, he calls him the son of David. This is kingdom language. He isn't looking for guidance from a man, but healing from God and his king. The crowds try to stop him because they don't think that this guy's worthy of any of Jesus' time. He's nothing like the wealthy guy who had a full attention of the whole crowd and Jesus himself. But still, what happens is that Jesus sees the one that the rest of the world wants to overlook. Don't miss that. That is a consistent theme. The ones that the world wants to overlook and to push to the margins. Jesus lifts up and listens. And instead of coming to Jesus and saying, what do I need to do? Jesus looks at this blind man and says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, just give me sight, Lord. It's not a really pious response. It's not forgive me. It's not about all these other things, but it's just he expects God to meet the most basic of needs and he assumes that he can do nothing for himself. He relies fully on Jesus and who he is. And what's the outcome? Well, sure, he regains his sight. He follows Jesus. But more than that, he glorifies God, and actually the whole community benefits from his healing. The whole community gets to witness something amazing of God's kingdom breaking in in that particular moment. And they also glorify God. The kingdom, it broke in and it shaped that neighborhood. I mean, this healed gentleman, alongside of the disciples, they had trusted Jesus with everything. And so they get everything. So yes, while not everyone is called to give away everything they have to the poor, what we see on display again and again in the very specific context of this rich man that Jesus invites him and us to a very consistent course of action. And what is that? It's this. Don't let your kingdom stand in the way of entering Jesus' kingdom. Don't let your kingdom stand in the way of entering Jesus' kingdom. And of course, the wealthy have more, more to sacrifice, or at least it feels that way. The poor feel like their kingdom is already in shambles, and so they're looking for someone to bring about change and deliverance. This is why they're often ready for a savior to show up. The status quo is not working for them. 
and change at whatever cost is worth it. And so let me ask you, if there are reasons that it costs you considerable wealth to follow Jesus, then do it. What are some good reasons? Well, if you're in a profession that dehumanizes others, that would be a good reason to experience financial loss and to leave that vocation. If your wealth consistently gives you access to destructive behaviors that you yourself cannot reject, that might be a very God-honoring reason to relieve yourself of wealth. If you consistently overlook generosity for fear that you don't have enough, that might be a good reason to release some wealth and so more deeply lean into Jesus. If there are reasons that it actually puts an obstacle between maybe you and your family and following Jesus, then you must navigate those obstacles head on with your family. Your alliances to your political party and your friends must always come second, must be evaluated by Jesus, and you may even have to walk away. And if that's the case, do it. You see, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., the end of life is not to be happy, nor to achieve pleasure and avoid pain, but to do the will of God, come what may. Now, as I was even writing this sermon and, and wrestling through this text, when we talk like this, if I'm going to be real with you, it can make following Jesus kind of sound cultish. <laughs> I don't know if you feel that way. At least that's just me. I was like, hey, man, if, you just, if you're not into the Jesus bandwagon yet, this sounds really, really weird. And actually, Merriam-Webster, let's go back to him. He defines a cult as a misplaced or excessive admiration for a particular person or thing. What is being a follower of Jesus but giving ultimate allegiance to someone, frankly, you can't see? And it causes you to give up anything that gets in the way of Jesus. The question that resides or that's resounding is, is this allegiance misplaced? That's the difference between a cult and Christianity. For what Jesus says and invites us to is unlike a cult because a cult takes everything and slowly uses you up, slowly dehumanizing you, but not so with Jesus. Yeah, it may cost you everything, but you become more truly yourself, more fully whole, and more deeply human. You see, Jesus makes a promise here in verse 29 of chapter 18 where he says, truly, so this is an amen statement. These are real common in the Gospels. This is where Jesus is making a proclamation based in his own authority. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Here's what we see. Jesus will provide more in his kingdom than we've sacrificed. I believe his promise here. God is building a new royal family here in his church. It's a called out community of Jesus followers. And remember, to follow Jesus is not to live in isolation, but to engage in his community. His church is his hands and his feet. So seeking to follow Jesus in isolation is missing his broader kingdom agenda, and his promises won't make sense here. It will still be difficult. It will still engage suffering. But what we gain is a whole new family that's rich in care and love. And he's making sure, frankly, that no one goes hungry here in his kingdom come 
and his church. We see this in the book of Acts where people are pulling together resources to care for one another. This is why we do Thanksgiving bags and broader care and benevolence because those within the church should never go hungry. And because of the church, they don't have to. Jesus is giving us a glimpse of what he'll do right here in his church and what he'll one day do fully this world over when he returns and his kingdom comes in full force. But who can actually live like that now, right? Is there a people that can actually be like that? In the words of Jesus here in our passage, chapter 18, verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. It's true of personal entrance to Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom reality he is bringing through his church. If it were up to us, we'd never be able to enter his kingdom. Which is why right after this interaction with the rich ruler and before we get to the blind beggar, Jesus foretells of his death. This is crucial and it's central to understanding how we enter his kingdom. He tells his disciples that he's going to the cross. Jesus himself had given up everything. He will not do what he himself, or he will not ask of us what he himself has not already done. He himself gives up everything in order to give us everything in his kingdom. And so there on the cross, Jesus' death will pay our debt. He will purchase what we cannot earn and offer to us what we so desperately need. And in his resurrection, he will secure our eternal life with him. This is what the disciples had to look forward to. This is what we get to look back to. Jesus has opened the door to his kingdom. And all we must do is receive like the blind man, rather than trying to earn it like the rich ruler. Don't let your kingdom stand in the way of entering Jesus' kingdom. Let it go and follow him. Let's pray. Every time I read this story, Lord Jesus, I'm struck by just how difficult that decision must have been for that rich ruler. To have the most privileged position in that society and asked to leave it all and to so attach the deepest of loyalties to Jesus is an extraordinary cost. But then I'm also reminded of the great cost that he paid because he didn't that he didn't surrender, that he didn't attach his loyalties to Jesus. And if there's someone watching today who's wrestling with holding back and holding on to their own kingdom rather than entering Jesus's, I pray, Lord, that you would loosen their grip. Give them the courage to trust in Jesus by your grace, to receive all that Christ has accomplished and freely offers in the gospel. And may they then experience the life-transforming power of the Holy Spirit to a deeper freedom from possessions, a deeper freedom from secondary loyalties that are shaped now by the all-encompassing, unconditional love of God. May it be so in me. May it be so in us. By the power of the Spirit, and in the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. And so we come to communion, a place where all eat and drink, reminded that this isn't a meal we could ever earn or provide for ourselves. We don't come as customers able to purchase. 
but as recipients, unable to ever pay the price. Here in the Lord's Supper, all who are followers of Jesus get to eat a meal that is free, but has been purchased simultaneously by the broken body of Jesus, symbolized in bread, and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, symbolized in juice. If you have some elements available to you and you have some friends and family around you, I'd encourage you to gather them together and to partake in remembrance of him. But before we do, let's remember what has been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, receive.